I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of News Beat. So every now and then, when we come across an issue that's particularly fluid and demands immediate attention, we do what's called a bonus episode, featuring one or two guests in a stripped-down Q&A format with our editors. That's what this is. Now, in this drop, we're addressing what's really behind the Trump administration's recently proposed overhaul of the U.S. Postal Service, the agency's historical significance to African Americans, and the true consequences of the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act a rarely publicized yet critically important law that's had catastrophic ramifications on its present and future. That's right, y'all. We're getting to the bottom of this whole post office thing. Our incredible guest is Paul Prescott, a high school social studies teacher and member of the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, who's made it his personal mission to raise awareness about all this, to expand an innovative movement to save the USPS and spark meaningful change. We learned about Paul and his quest from one of his extraordinarily insightful pieces in Jacobin Magazine titled Defend the Post Office, Defend Black Workers, which we highly recommend. Now, as always, if you like what you hear, we ask you to take just a moment to rate and review us afterward wherever you listen to podcasts and swing on over to usnewsbeat.com where you can access an accompanying story to this bonus episode, check out all of our previous full episodes, extended guest bios, more about us, and so much more. Now, first-time listeners, you should note that our full episodes consist of even more interviews with experts, including activists, academics, authors, and more, as well as original lyrical contributions by brilliant independent hip-hop artists, all woven over a bed of music. Uh, We like to say it's like as if Democracy Now! and Black Thought from the Roots had a podcast baby. You should definitely check out our full episodes for really compelling looks at these very important social justice issues done in a way that no one else does it. So once again, my name is Manny Faces, and on behalf of the entire Newsbeat and Mord Creative Studios teams, we thank you for listening. And without further ado, here we go. This is Return to Sender. Saving the U.S. Post Office is a racial justice issue. Our editors, Rashed Mian and Christopher Tawarski, take it away. So, Paul, can you sort of just explain the significance of the U.S. postal system specifically to African-Americans as a source of employment and financial stability, which you trace to the legal end of slavery in your in your piece in Jacobin? Yeah, so postal employment was uh, open for Black people all the way back in 1861. And in 1864, there was some legislation introduced to ban discrimination in federal employment. Now, it wasn't always enforced, but this allowed Black people to gain a foothold in some relatively, you know, stable employment. And um, great example of this is someone named William Harvey Carney. So he was, he escaped slavery. He joined the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the all-Black regiment during the Civil War. Then afterwards got work in the Postal Service and he worked there for the next 30 years. He became a founding member of the National Association of Letter Carriers, which is the union for letter carriers that still exists today. That was a similar story for many former slaves after the war, and it was one of the only examples of decent employment most Black workers could get. And this, you know, has continued today. So even if you look at the, in the early 20th century, Black postal workers kind of had a similar prestige as Pullman car porter workers, which was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the union organized by A. Philip Randolph. So they were kind of known as like, you know, this groups of black working class people, but they were relatively stable. There was some prestige to the job. 
And they were also known as civic actors, which maybe I, I'll get to that a little later, but just focus on the, the economic part. And, you know, there's certain statistics that are pretty incredible when you look at that kind of make this point. So in 1940, for example, 12% of Black workers that made above the national median income worked as postal workers. That's a lot for just one job providing that kind of um, stability. And even in the, in the 1960s, it became a haven for many Black women who were not finding many opportunities in the private sector. And this kind of mirrored what was going on in the public sector more generally. Of course, the Civil Rights Act struck down Jim Crow, but what it also did was kind of ban discrimination in all kinds of public employment. And later that would kind of become affirmative action. So this is happening at the same time as the public sector is expanding in general. And especially with the war on poverty, it created a lot more government jobs. So Black people were able to gain access to these jobs in a big way. If you kind of fast forward to today, so 21% of postal workers are Black. The Postal Service is like a good, stable union job. It's not like they're living large, but the, the average salary of a postal worker is 55000 a year. You got good benefits, good stability. So it's one of these things where, you know, saving a post office doesn't seem like a racial justice issue, but these are the types of jobs that like, I mean, no one can afford to lose, but especially black people. So it's like, just imagine how much worse the situation is going to be when you eliminate these kinds of good jobs that have provided stability over the years. And Paul, if you could, if you could just explain to listeners too the, the power, you know, and the effect of the Postal Service in both the civil rights and union movements. Yeah, this period of, I mean, some people might call it the early civil rights movement or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I really think it laid the basis for what we think of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. But in the early 20th century, it was kind of this labor civil rights alliance. So like A. Philip Randolph is kind of one of the best examples of it. But especially in the 30s and 40s, the new industrial unions, like a lot of civil rights activity happened in the context of the union movement. And even when you go to the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, a lot of that was paid for by the Auto Workers Union. And if you look at signs from that period, it's a lot of union signs there. In the 30s and 40s, for example, a lot of the NAACP's biggest chapters were led by Black postal workers. There was this tension at that time between the NAACP as a middle-class organization or a working-class one. And you saw some interesting things happen not just among postal workers, but other industrial unions where they would basically like take over local NAACP chapters and make them real working class organizations instead of uh, middle class ones. In the 40s, they lobbied. So there was a union called the National Alliance of Postal Employees, which was a mostly black postal union. Doesn't exist anymore today. They lobbied in the 40s for some really important reforms um, they got through executive orders. So uh, one of them was eliminating the photo requirement for applications. People would use that to screen out Black employees. They're able to get further anti-discrimination um, clauses through the, that kind of activism. Another interesting anecdote is during the Montgomery bus boycott, you actually had Black letter carriers helping to outline what should be the carpool route for people because they knew the streets better than most people would. And so, you know, they were a big part this Postal Workers Union was a big part of lobbying for the 1963 Civil Rights Act, um, and especially the legislation around federal employment. And, you know, it's no coincidence that I think in 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. was a guest at the um, National Alliance of Postal Employees Union Convention in Los Angeles. Um, and he really thanked them for 
advocating, especially for like the Equal Pay Act, which especially really helped Black women in the Postal Service. So yeah, I mean, in general, there was always a big connection between civil rights and labor, and um, especially with with postal workers, they really highlighted that. And even today, and a lot of Black postal workers recognize this, like past postal worker officials have been saying, like, as they're attacking the post office, this is really a big attack on the Black middle class. Depending how you define, I still would maintain there it's a Black working class, but I mean, what they mean is just like some kind of wealth and employment stability among Black people. And Paul, so a lot of people, you know, a lot of Americans, they hear about the, the crisis unfolding at the Postal Service, not just uh, the one that's being created now, but in terms of the financial distress that it's in. So can you explain to listeners the, the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act and why that's sort of been harmful to not just postal employees, but especially African-Americans as well? Yeah. And this is really important. A lot of people don't necessarily notice. It's getting more information now, but this is literally the one talking point you need. It really is. It explains everything. So in 2006, a law was passed by, and it had bipartisan support, by the way. It wasn't just Republicans. And this law mandated the Postal Service to pre-fund their employees' pensions and health benefits 75 years in advance. And literally, you cannot find another public entity or company, private company, that has to do that. It's totally ridiculous. So, and, that, and that means literally billions each year they're setting aside. And so it's no surprise that before that law, they were running a surplus. And by the way, the post service is not, it's not funded by taxpayer dollars. That's another thing a lot of people don't know. So they were running a surplus. After that, of course, they're running a deficit. And so any rational person would ask, why would they do that? And to me, this is clearly an effort to privatize. I'm a public school teacher. They do the same thing with education. You defund the public schools. They start performing badly, and then they turn around and say, oh, man, looks like we got to bring in you know, the private sector. So that is really explains the financial crisis they're in. If you repeal that law, I mean, it, that all goes away. And you know, the Post Service has taken a hit from COVID, just like everyone else and everything else. But this just made a, the situation was already bad, and this was made a lot worse from COVID. They wouldn't be in this situation without that 2006 law. It's incredible. I mean, and it's, when we read that in your piece, we were just both like, right. Yeah. It's oh, actually what's kind of amazing. As I've gotten more interested in the post service, I honestly don't know where this started my interest with this, but I've noticed more in popular culture and media. There's a lot of like digs at the post office, like, oh, it's so inefficient. But it's kind of interesting because polls have shown that they are the highest rated government agency, 91%. And that cuts across partisan lines. And also, despite this pre-funding mandate that they've had, they've actually been able to maintain very good service all these years, which is pretty incredible. Maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but another thing we can think about is like, not only repealing that law, but other things could generate revenue for the Postal Service. I think the lowest hanging fruit is postal banking, where you could offer basic banking services and there's a post office in every zip code. So there's a lot of people who are underbanked served by banks in this country. And I mean, that's like a win-win for everyone except the payday loan industry. So, you know, because it would not only give banking services, but it would create uh, more revenue for the post office and it would create more jobs. And again, I think this is another thing. You could actually look at this as an anti-racist demand because you more often see these loan shark places in poor Black communities, if we're being honest. That's kind of where I've seen it most prominent 
So this reform would basically take out parasites from the lives of, of people that, you know, are trying to get basic banking services, but they're being ripped off through payday loans. You know, there's a lot you could do with the post service. People have talked about having electric car charging stations at post offices, having it serve as internet hubs. You know, there's no real limit, but of course it would just, you would need funding and support to do that. Can you explain to listeners, you did such a great job in the piece about, you know, where Bernie Sanders had fit into this puzzle. Mm -hmm. And is there still hope? Are you still holding out hope for, for sort of those, uh, those innovations um, and recalibrations, if you will, under either Biden presidency, or is there anyone else out there who might pick up that torch? Yeah. And um, it's funny, I heard about postal banking through Bernie Sanders in 2016. He really highlighted it. You know, his whole life, he's been an ardent defender of the postal service. So he's been pushing to repeal that 2006 law. He helped basically vote down new board of governors that was full of people who wanted to privatize the postal service. And, you know, it's no surprise. And the, the American Postal Workers Union endorsed Bernie both in 2016 and, and 2020. In terms of the hope of these reforms, you know, people like AOC, um, we were actually before COVID planning to do an event in DSA in New York with AOC and Bernie and the Postal Workers Union on this. And then that kind of all got torpedoed. But you know, progressives in that vein, I think, would champion these things. And what I'm hoping is that because the crisis of the post service intersected with the election, it's getting so much attention. Like, I don't think there's ever been a time it's been in the news that much. So I'm hoping public sentiment can now be mobilized around these kind of reforms. I don't have much hope in a for Biden administration taking this up, but I do think it kind of depends on if we can build a movement around this what I actually would encourage people to do, if you're mobilizing around this in your area, and especially if you have connections with the union, what we're looking at doing in Philly is like, after this crisis, hopefully, when we've at least saved the post service, we can actually launch a campaign for a local campaign for postal banking. The union actually has this going in a few areas, and it should be a lot more, but they're basically, it's like a campaign for the postmaster general to pilot a postal banking program to see how it works. So I think right now is a time where at the local level, you could start pushing for that. And I think there would be broad public support for it. And hopefully we can get it going at the local level. It can go to the national. But yeah, I think I wouldn't rely alone on a Biden administration. Um, they may not completely destroy the post service like I think Trump would, but I don't even know where they stand on repealing that 2006 law. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. I think like most other things, it's it, if we could build a movement around it, there'd be uh, a lot of hope that we could make some progress. Yeah. And, and Paul, I would be remiss if we didn't you know recognize what's been happening in recent weeks, this, this clear effort to undermine the Postal Service in the run-up to the presidential election in November, especially when it seems like the majority of the country might use mail-in ballots to safely vote. So we were looking at mail slowdowns, the dismantling of the sorting machines, and the, the reduction of overtime and all these other mechanisms. You mentioned it before, but I, and I just wanna, I want you to talk about that a little more, is the, the idea of privatizing the Postal Service. Do you see this as part of this long-running effort to do that? Um, and, and if you could just explain to listeners just sort of the, the recent history of these efforts to try to privatize the Postal Service. Yeah, I, I definitely see this as part of that effort. I don't think it's just the motivation around the election, although I do think that's a factor. I think you'd still be seeing this eventually. And yeah, for some context, so I think 2006 law 
the real goal of that was privatizing. In 2018, um, the new, relatively new Postal Board of Governors, which is now unfortunately mostly Republican, they came out with a study about you know how to improve efficiency, and they they came out and admitted they recommend privatization. So you had that, and now you have the new Postmaster General DeJoy. And a lot of people highlight he is a Republican donor. His background, though, is in a logistics firm, and they actually specialize. I mean, he was very good at cutting jobs and automating. And I think, you know, this stuff of delaying mail is just, even without the election, again, it's a way to undermine service and then undermine people's faith in the Postal Service. And then you can turn around and make the argument for privatizing. The negative effects of privatizing are huge. So, again, the biggest thing would be like they would basically bust the union. 600,000 living wage jobs are provided by the Postal Service. And again, 21% of those are Black people working in those jobs. So not just that, but again, the, this is a universal service that is extremely affordable. You can compare the rates. It's no contest, the rates between UPS and, and FedEx. So again, instead of like, this is just one more time in America where we would have a public service being undermined and that would hurt customers in, in so many different ways. That's kind of the, the short of it. Um, it would destroy living wage jobs. It would destroy unions and it would destroy like an affordable service that people rely on. And now it's being highlighted how people depend on medicines. The Veterans Administration, they use the post service exclusively for their medication. So this stuff lately has been delaying that kind of things. Um, it would be a complete disaster to privatize the postal service. Yeah. And you touched upon points of my last question, which is really just to revisit the, the fundamental functions of the U.S. Postal Service as cheap vehicle for communication, right, um, uh, among a, a community, among individuals in terms of socioeconomic difficulties and, and just being poor. You know, you, you know, not everybody has a smartphone, you know, mm-hmm. or internet or a computer, you know, but a letter, you can still get a letter from a family member. So, right. Yeah. And, Lately, this last two weeks, I've been working with the union to flyer customers at post offices. And I'll admit, I mean, I don't necessarily go to post office that much. But again, this popular rhetoric around it's, oh, it's so like outdated and inefficient. I was at various locations and all day there's people streaming in and out. And again, young and old. So this is a thing. It's not like people don't use this anymore. And it could be used for other things. One thing I just want to make sure I say is that, again, this is an issue that doesn't seem like a racial justice issue, but it, it is, especially in this moment, we, you know, with the big protests against police brutality and all everyone's talking about race in America, this is really important to think about the public sector in general. So Black people disproportionately work in the public sector, and those jobs are disproportionately you know, more unionized, better benefits, and Black workers in the public sector actually make 25% more on average, than their counterparts in the private sector. So let's say we did defund the police and we did have more police accountability. It would be hard for me to see that as much of a victory if at the same time there's austerity and the post office is privatized. I think most people, you don't have to be a leftist, I think most people understand there's a close connection between crime and poverty um, and over-policing. It's no coincidence if you take an upper-middle-class neighborhood, even if it's an all-black upper-middle-class neighborhood, there's not going to be as much so-called crime. There might be white-collar crime, but um, there won't be as much crime. There won't be as much over-policing, whereas if you take a poor community, there will be. And again, it's like 
for many black workers and black communities, like public sector jobs are like a very thin line between like some stability and just like complete impoverishment. So something like this, or just all this austerity that is probably coming down the pipe, like if that happens, I think the policing crisis is going to be a lot worse, regardless of what we do with laws just around police. So I think that's important to think about when we talk about Black Lives Matter to incorporate the defense of the public sector in that. So, Paul, you mentioned earlier that you're handing out flyers at the post office. Uh, so you're on the ground doing the work. You're a union member. So can you just explain uh, to the listeners what you're doing and uh, and what you guys are trying to get done out in Philadelphia? Yeah. And this, at least in Philly, this started a few months back because, I mean, the issue of funding, they're asking for $25 billion in stimulus to keep the post office running during this crisis. And again, this is individuals, small businesses, and corporations have gotten money. They're not asking for anything crazy that no one else has been getting. So we did start mobilizing with the union in June. They had a National Day of Action, June 23rd. We were doing some virtual phone banks of senators. So the House, it looks like the House is going to pass funding, but it's the Republican senators that they're focused on and that for getting that funding. And then now since the recent policies that have delayed mail, which has been relatively recent, we decided to start flying customers because now it's really affecting customers. And I'm not sure in your area, but it's almost universally mail is being delayed, even whether it's the city or suburbs. It's a very, very real thing on the ground that's happening. And, you know, our ass is calling senators, but also the Postal Board of Governors to pressure them to reverse these changes. I'll insert here, you might have heard that DeJoy actually did back down and said he's going to stop these new policies until after the election which is good that it doesn't solve the funding issue yet. And I think we still have to keep pressure to make sure they're actually doing that. But that is a good sign that this pressure has been working. And there's actually this Saturday, it's been a little last minute, but it's exploded as an issue. There are plans for national rallies to save the post office across the country. So see, Move On is sponsoring this along with the NAACP and Postal Workers Union. So watch out for that. But right now, I think we've got to keep focus on, even though the policies have been changed for now, we got to stay focused on the funding. They need $25 billion in funding. And we got to press on repealing the 2006 law. And also, DeJoy said after the election, he plans to reinstitute those changes. So I think right now, because attention is on postal service, we should try to mobilize for the long term for even after the election to stop them from these efforts, which I think are like the first steps in privatizing. Yeah, Paul, we really appreciate uh, uh, you coming on, just providing this critical context, because a lot of people just are unaware of just the behind the scenes, what's happening at the post office and these decades long efforts to undermine it and potentially privatize it. So we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy, Prophets of Rage. And this is News.